0: Welcome to Pixelate Radio, on the web at GetPixelated.com.
1: That's GetPixel, the number 8, ED.com.
0: Now, here's your host.
1: Hey there, and welcome back to Pixelate. We've got an exciting show for you today because we're joined by Mr. Jeff Veen, Application Design Manager at Google. Jeff's going to share his insights on user experience, and if you listen carefully, he's going to give you the ultimate key to creating a successful user experience. For downloads, notes, and places to leave your feedback, please go to getpixelated.com slash shows slash veen. You know, user experience is is a big topic. It's not just necessarily about software and the screens that we look at and how people interact. You know, it's also about the companies that we deal with and and how they treat you and customer service and and everything on down the line. And even when you look to the future and see what the rules are going to be for user experience, it's it's kind of exciting. There's this... um, this article you might want to check out, there's this company putting together a new uh, bionic contact lenses to where they can basically put images up in front of your eyes without the need of a screen or anything because it's directly on the contact lens. And obviously there's some uh, a lot of optimism for for something like this for people that have vision impairment, but just think about what it could do for computing and wireless computing and you know you strap a computer to you and plug it in and you can see things you could i mean it would just take mashup to a whole different level and and be able to display uh data right in front of you and, and integrate it with the real world it's amazing if you want to check it out go to tinyurl.com 2k g e z as in zebra d as in dog and kind of in the same light, uh, there's a cell phone display concept designed to work, to be powered by your blood, and and it's a it's a tattoo. It's this stuff is just crazy, crazy kind of stuff. But it points out that you know user experience as we know it, as we think of it, may not always be um, the the same boundaries. So if you want to check out the the tattoo interface for the the cell phone, <laughs> it's over at tinyurl.com. Slash two one seven six F isn't Frank eight. Now there's a little company out there that knows a thing or two about user experience, and uh, th- that's Google. And did you know that you can, you can earn money doing user experience research for them? Check out tinyurl.com slash yrb is in boy e five q. Uh, that, that's the frequently asked questions page for their user experience research. And basically what you can do is sign up with them, go into the Google offices or do things remote and give them feedback for user experience. Um, and, uh, I, you know, researching for the show, I'd, i never realized they'd done something like that. Um, so money aside, it, being a part of the development community. You get a chance to be in early on some things. Um, that sounds like something that if you have the time would be a lot of fun. Now, they apparently use this research for a number of different things. And I found this, this article out on the web where it talks about user experience the Google way. And uh, it was done by Luke W. I would love to be able to pronounce his, his last name, um, but he's a, a big UX guy over at uh, Yahoo, came from eBay. But he, did a, he wrote this blog post about user experience in the, the Google way. And I want to read you a quote from it and he talks about how, they're, how they maintain the, the very simple UI that they have and avoiding the, the scope creek. So he says, to maintain the simple user experience, Google follows a 20 slash five rule for feature inclusion. If a particular feature or function does not have 20% adoption, based mostly on click-through data, it does not show up on a core page. If a feature does not have 5% adoption, it doesn't show up within the preferences. So how's that for rigorous UI standards? Now, our guest uh, was, has been involved in a lot of different things. He's been involved in building experiences for Blogger and Flickr, MeasureMap, which became Google Analytics, which we're going to talk a lot about. But he also helped found Adaptive Path, which is a user experience firm, consulting firm, but they focus on research-based user experience. And he's got a re- revealing blog post where he introduces um, a new book called Mental Models by um, one of his colleagues, Indy Young, where he talks about the, the mental process that he's gone through in order to pre- appreciate the value of doing research on user experience and really how that value came to light and has helped a lot of the organizations that he's in. So check out Jeff's post on mental models. You can find it at tinyurl.com 3 X. N Z as in zebra, U-T. And even at the end of the post, he shows you a way that you can save 20% on the book. So that's pretty cool. So let's turn our attention now to Mr. Jeff Veen. Well, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. It's it's great to have you here. I was wondering if you could just kick us off uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: No, I'd be happy to, and thanks for the invitation. so I've, uh, uh, I'm have i working now at Google, where I'm a design manager for our, all of Google's applications. Um, we sort of think of things as uh, all the search stuff Google does, all the advertising stuff, uh, and then all the applications like Gmail and Calendar and Blogger and Orkut. And, and that's sort of my responsibility now, uh, at least on the user experience side. So the designers and researchers, uh, we have a team of about 40 of us that work on that stuff now. Um, and before that, I had uh, started a company with a bunch of my friends called Adaptive Path. Um, probably most known with your audience, at least, for uh, uh, having one of my partners coin the term AJAX back yeah. uh, a few years ago. Uh, that was Jesse James Garrett, one of my uh, one of my friends and partners there. Um, and while I was at Adaptive Path, one of the projects I worked on was a- an application we developed called MeasureMap, which was an analytics package designed for bloggers. Uh, and that's how, that's how, what got me to Google was that they uh, acquired that application and I brought a small team over from Adaptive Path over to Google. And so I'm still working with those guys and uh, and we're having a lot of fun over here. And I guess going way back, um, I started in the mid-90s working on the web uh, at Wired Magazine uh, on Hot Wired, which was one of the first commercial web sites uh, to sort of, you know, supported by advertising and stuff like that, and uh, had done a... Um, worked there for a number of years and went with them through an acquisition of Lycos and worked at Lycos and Hotbot. And so, so my experience with search goes back uh, quite a ways as well.
1: You've been involved in all these amazing projects and and websites that all of us have either used or been very familiar with. And yet, One of the burning questions I have is, you know, what was it like to go to a Major League Baseball game in a dress?
0: (laughs) Oh, you're going to make me tell that story, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I had the misfortune of uh, making a bet on whether Barry Bonds would break the record or not with a friend of mine. And uh, unfortunately, the consequences were that the loser of the bet would have to wear a dress to a game. So I lost the bet. I wore a more game. I guess the only, only sort of redeeming thing about it all was that it was in San Francisco, so it wasn't all that big of a deal. It was really yeah. a, a guy in a dress, but. <laughs>
1: uh, well, you know, you're you're definitely a man of your word, and, and you have a you you have you're a good sport about it. So. <laughs>
0: Well, it was fine. I'll, t- I'll leave it at that.
1: <laughs> so starting back at some of your early days when when you were involved at Wired, Wired was one of the first major websites to to go standards, to use a CSS-only uh, type of layout. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like, doing that as as one of the first major websites to, to do it?
0: Sure. Um, one of the things I uh, really value about my time at Wired was that um, we could... In- sort of help create some of the best practices around web design uh, whether that was through the work that we were doing on the on the website or through the stuff we were publishing like through Web Monkey and and things like that because I mean there wasn't a lot to go on back in like, four <laughs> we, we were kind of making a lot of this stuff up and we would just write it down and you know and and so um, we also uh, felt pretty strongly uh, about uh, things like web standards and, um, and open source tools. I mean, the Apache web server uh, came. Um, uh, the, some of the engineers at Hotwire were some of the early engineers on that project as well. So there was this history of uh, and this culture there of openness and standards and, um, and things like that. Um, and so I had always participated in the sort of design side of standards. I had been on the World Wide Web Consortium's um, CSS and HTML Uh, working groups participating there as a, you know, coming from a a, a rich design background at Wired. Um, And so we always kind of pushed for that. The problem was, of course, that the browsers never supported any of the standards that we wanted to, to use, and the fact that the standards really lagged behind a lot of what was possible to do in the browsers, right? So we'd see yeah. things like frames coming out in Netscape and, um, and uh, you know a lot of the other uh, font control and typography uh, enhancements in the browsers, and there's just no standard way to do it. So we experimented with that stuff and pushed for the standards. Hmm. Um, so uh, a Were lot Were you involved
1: of that... with the web standards project?
0: Yeah, and that was another place as well, Uh, coming out of the frustration of how slowly the um, standards bodies would move, and understandably so, you know, to get all of those big corporations with all their interests aligned is incredibly difficult work, and I commend the W3C for even attempting to try to do it, but at the same time, designers were pretty frustrated and and developers with what was available, right, like what we could actually do, and we wanted to push forward and say, browsers, you've got to support that. So... um, Glenn Davis uh, and Jeffrey Zeldman uh, and a few other people started up the Web Standards Project and asked me to participate in that, and so that was also a great platform for us to just make some noise, you know, to yeah. say like, "Hey, this is a big deal. This, you know, this is costing our companies money." we're we're developing our websites in four different versions for all these different browsers. There's a flat out like financial cost to this. To this, yeah. And so we made a bunch of noise, and I think you know moved the needle and and.
1: It was amazing uh, and, to see it happen. I mean, just to, to see this independent body and and to see, the, like you're saying, these huge companies respond. It was it, it was amazing.
0: Yeah, it it was good because you know there was this was also the time when Linux was getting really popular in the enterprise, you know, and just starting to make you know, and so this idea of openness and, um, and kind of doing things the right way rather than the proprietary way or, um became this sort of like marketing hook that, that some of these big companies really started to, to hang their message on. And, and I think the web standards project hit that just at the right time, right? Hmm. Where companies were coming out and saying, like, we're supporting Linux, and we're supporting web standards, you know, and the Firefox browser, you know, was under development and as an open source movement. And I think it was just this sort of perfect storm of web standards. Yeah. So in that context, like um, uh, this was right about the time when I was leaving to start my own company. But I spent a lot of time with uh, one of the designers there who I was good friends with um, and we'd worked on WebMonkey a lot. And his name is Doug Bowman, uh, who uh, went on to found Stop Design and stuff. But, but he sort of picked it up at Wired and then did the Wired News redesign in a 100% sort of standards-compliant way. And I think that really made a, a big splash to see a company take its content and really invest in web standards like that. And to his credit, he, you know, fought to make the pages validate to the very end. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, not like easy. No, not easy at all. And he did a he did a fantastic job on that. He, so, as a matter of fact, he's here at Google now. He and I work together again
1: now. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's yeah. yeah I remember reading that on his blog. That was like what a year and a half ago.
0: About yeah, that's yeah about um, yeah about six months after I started here at Google, I started about two years ago. So he came here. Uh-huh.
1: It's too bad you don't have anybody you know smart and creative around you to work with. I mean, I feel bad.
0: <laughs> I tell you, Google is an amazing place. The the just the raw talent that's in in these buildings is is really phenomenal.
1: Oh, I believe you. Now you've you've done design work for Blogger and TypePad and Flickr and you know these are all websites that have have been. Awarded and and cited for their uh, for their user experience and and for design, what kind of a process do you use when you're going to to create something and and create a website like this?
0: Well, uh, I I've been really fortunate in that when I was at Adaptive Path, I I was able to work with a lot of these startups and um and you know part of it is that the the applications that you mentioned the what the the web tools that you mentioned there. Uh, were created by people who had a passion for their products right it 's a lot different than you know um, uh, getting a bunch of clients in say the enterprise space or something like that where where it 's not the same the distance between the decisions you make and the customers that you affect is a lot uh, different in right. the enterprise space versus uh, and not just the consumer space but really in that social media and publishing and blogging and um, and that kind of stuff and so those companies you know are founded by people that um, want to use these tools as well as share these tools with other people. And I think that's where it comes from, that sort of passion for making stuff for people um, is what drew me to those kind of clients and why I, I enjoyed working with these startups so much. Um, and you see that, you know, in Six Apart and um, and in at places like uh, the Obvious Corporation that Devin Williams, after Blogger, has founded where Twitter is coming from. These are, these are you know, companies that um, that are doing lots of innovative stuff um with this really tight integration or rather iteration and, and coupling with their audience um and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they um that they're making products that they themselves want to use so when it comes to doing user research it's a matter of already having that empathy in place and i think some of the best design work that i've ever been able to participate in and that i've seen you know in my colleagues is, is is design work that comes from empathy, right? Like really understanding what people are trying to do with an application and enabling that. So that's usually where I start from.
1: Okay, and then how do you you communicate that to maybe a development team who are just like heads down coder type people?
0: Well, I think um, I've always felt that it's incredibly important that there be really no sort of handoff process yeah you know, i've seen this in, in lots of organizations that we did consulting with where maybe some researchers would go out and do a study and they they'd, you know they'd have some insights and then they'd hand off those insights in a report to some designers who would take that and then craft that into an interface that you know, might sort of satisfy the insights from the report and they'd, they'd take that interface and hand it off to somebody who would write a technical specification, who would then hand <laughs> off that specification to an in- a group of engineers that would then, you know, look at what they're supposed to build and write the code. And,
1: and squeeze you know, all
0: the life out of it. Yeah, it's as you know, that works you know, in, in instances, in certain circumstances and contexts, but for, for me, I, it's always been that really, really tight uh, collaboration with everybody all the time. Right. So whether it is is we're, we're doing you know some research to figure out what the right solution would be, I want, you know, of course, that'll be led by somebody with those skills um, and, and competencies. But I want everybody to participate in that. Likewise, the designs should be collaborative. And, you know, I love filling up whiteboards with designer, researcher, engineers, marketing, business people. Everybody has constraints to put on a design. They all have to be involved all the time. And so that's what I see. That's why I think the. Um, the, that's another quality of these startups is that everybody is involved in the feature all the time um and it and it leads to I think much more robust designs.
1: Hmm. So are you usually the person who has the final say in in what happens? Oh I wish <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, i mean it it depends right like when we were doing measure map, it was just a few of us and um and I led the project um so uh ultimately, if there's disagreement, we try to uh, I would be the one that would lead trying to build a consensus on the team right but um but for the most part, if there's a shared vision for what the product needs to be um it it never really comes down to a final say. It comes down to working through all the different options and comes down to um you know, some sort of consensus among the team that we have, we have finally been through enough of iteration and options to find the thing that we all agree on is the
1: right mm. thing to do. Now, talking about measuring, map tell us a little bit about how this, this came to be.
0: Um, I had been at Adaptive Path for about uh, four years doing consulting work um, and was ready for um, a little bit closer connection to an audience and a longer engagement with that audience than you get with consulting. I thought consulting was fantastic at at the diversity of projects that you can work on, right? Like uh, every six weeks or, or you know, and once a quarter you switch from uh, doing e-commerce and then an intranet and then a startup and, you know, it was, it was fantastic, right. but I was really ready to sort of um, engage with an audience and, and build something for that audience and see it through the the entire life cycle of a product. Uh, and so I asked my partners if uh, um, uh, if that was something, you know, a direction we could take the company because we were a, a consulting company. And so we created a line of business around developing a product like this. Uh, I worked with one of my partners at uh, Adaptive Path, Lane Becker, who has now started his own company called Get Satisfaction. Um, and he and I sort of cr- kind of carved out the space at Adaptive Path to, to do something like this. Um, and... Uh, we you know, had been kicking around ideas. And I remember, I think it was on a mailing list or something where somebody was talking about how difficult it was to just figure out whether or not the blogging they were doing was having any impact, right? There were some tools, you know, like Technorati was out at the time so you could see who was linking to you. And, right. and there was all kinds of, um, analytics packages you could use, but it was really clear that analytics packages were either for big enterprise customers, you know, like e-commerce places for tracking all of the, every possible statistic, right. or they were for sysadmins to make sure the, the, the server was healthy and they're not getting a lot of error messages and stuff like that. But there's nothing really for people who had a blog. And and so that seemed like such a great market opportunity to take the power of analytics but simplify it down to a very specific type of website and a, and a specific type of website owner. And that's where MeasureMap really came from, right? The desire to go after a market. And again, it was a market that we were all part of. We all had blogs. Right. We all were really interested in whether or not our blogs were you know, getting traffic or having an impact on the world. You were so excited we to build tools. it
1: because you wanted to use it. We wanted to use it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and I remember, like, that was such a key motivating factor, like all these long days and, and uh, all these hurdles we had to overcome. But I still like I was so excited to, for to see the numbers finally come up. Right.
1: To finally, like,
0: <laughs> you know, and so it, it was great. Um, it was a great sort of uh, that that sort of tight integration between audience and who we were and what we wanted to build. And, and it just worked out so well
1: well let's let's talk about some of those hurdles what What sort of challenges did you face when you were first building this out?
0: Um, well I, there were lots of technical challenges um, thankfully we were uh, we were just at the edge um, this was about three and a half years ago that we were or maybe even close to four years ago that we were just getting started building this. We we're at the edge of the of the time when it became really low risk to uh, to flush out a a web app right you know if you <laughs> think about 10 or 12 years ago, getting started on the web, like you'd have to, you'd have to raise a bunch of money. You'd have to right. go buy a bunch of servers and you'd have to go buy a bunch of, um, you know, really expensive database software and development environment and stuff like that. But, but with that open source movement, um, you know, like the software that we developed the application on was all open source free software. And the servers that we went out and bought to to host it on were, you know, commodity, Intel-based hardware. We didn't have to go buy a giant server right. or SGI like we used to have to do. So the, so the risk was really low, um, which was good, which gave us an opportunity to kind of speculate and see if this is something that we could, could do. Um, but the other, uh, one of the other things that we faced was the fact that our development team was almost entirely remote. Um, huh. We had uh, a person in Portland, and another one in Toronto, and one in Austin, and somebody in Chicago, and um, it, we, we did sort of, instead of kind of outsourcing it, we, we sort of near sourced it, right? right? We found, um, people that were incredibly talented, um, uh, but weren't ready to sort of relocate and nor were we ready to relocate them. Cause again, you know, sure. this is sort of speculative, we, right. we want to try to build this and see if this is really going to take off without having to go out and raise a million dollars and move everybody out. And, and so that caused us to have a sort of discipline, uh, to the communication that we were doing around that, you know, in the project management um, around the building of Measure Map, that I think really paid off, you know, that. So um, I knew a little bit about the agile development process. Um, I'm not really very process focused myself, but I realized, like, if we're all over the place, all over the country, like, we're going to have to put some stuff in place, some kind of discipline so that we all are on the same page. We'll know what we're doing. And, and there's always momentum. So we had things like a 10 a.m. call. Every day, and it was okay. almost scripted, and we never let it go more than forty-five minutes. It like, <laughs> didn't turn into a big discussion, and um, you know, we would like I would just go through and like, what do you need? What what have you done? What's what's a roadblock? You know, and we'd go through everybody talking, and it would turn into a big list of things we were going to do that day, and hmm. people who needed to talk to each other after the meeting and stuff like that. So we did a lot of that kind of stuff. So I think a lot of the the sort of perceived hurdles turned into good. Sort of practices for us to develop, whether it was, you know, uh, that that sort of risk management or communication discipline, you know, stuff
1: like that. Right. How long did it take when you first started to build up the first working copy?
0: Um, well, we did it in a couple of ways. I started with just a JavaScript developer who turned out also happened to be my brother, and <laughs> he and I, um, he and I, worked out kind of a a, a pseudo working prototype. Um, based on some designs that I worked on with the creative director at Adaptive Path at the time, Tim Gasparic. And um, and the three of us kind of um, took a stab at it, right? And, and we made it really time boxed. We said, you know, we're gonna spend a month on this uh, and we're gonna see just kind of what we could come up with. And so um, so we started that way and we made this uh, prototype that was very kind of Ajax um, based. There was no server behind it, all the data was fake. and But it gave us that sort of framework prototype thing that we could do a little bit of usability testing on and um and stuff like that and did that very quickly and when we saw like yeah okay we sort of get how this is gonna work and some of the themes that we want to see in this product are 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 here in this prototype, then we started to um do a little more recruiting and you know some of the more technical competency that we need to, to build out the the back end of the application. Um, but in total, like we had a working running full fledged application um in probably about six months, uh-huh. um, inv- invited a few people in. Um, that's, you know, and now looking back, that's really not the hard part. You know, when I see all of these web apps that are out now, you know, <laughs> like you look at TechCrunch and, you know, your eyes just kind of... Uh, Pop out a little bit. With, yeah, there's yeah. Just so much going on out there. And that's because, frankly, I think anybody with a good idea and a little bit of technical confidence can put together a web app. The hard part, right, is scale. Yeah. What happens if that thing gets popular? Yeah. If you go from like, we built this thing and it works and we've got, you know, a thousand people using it and it's really cool. And then it like, you know, then you get on the front page of DIG or, or covered by TechCrunch or something and you you go from a thousand to fifty thousand in a week and you want to go from fifty thousand to a half a million. That's where it gets really, really difficult. And I'm glad to see stuff like, you know, the Amazon services that are coming out and, and, and things like that to help people who don't have the uh the competency to do that kind of scaling that quickly, you know, we're getting there. We're sort of providing that infrastructure, um, but I think that's really where, um, where the web app stuff uh, is going to start to show its maturity.
1: Well, and, and with MeasureMap, which ended up becoming Google analytics that had to have been on the forefront of your mind because we were putting that code on, you know, possibly every single page of your website. And then, you know, (laughs) you you get a lot of people who have popular websites, then that just, you know, magnifies what you need. Every,
0: every hit they get, we would get. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And so about a year into the project, when we felt like, yeah, we, we've got the architecture, we've got the, the user experience is good, like people the people who are using it really, really love it, um, was when we realized, okay, it's time for us to scale. And so uh, we went out to start to raise some money for the application. Um, and that's when the uh, acquisition offer happened. Um, and that made it a lot
1: easier to scale. So, um, <laughs> So what was that like when you when you got that that offer letter from Google?
0: Uh it's hard to say because it's a I mean anybody who's been through any sort of acquisition like that knows that it's just it's all it's not just a long series of negotiations but it's um you know it's it's building a relationship and it's you know um it's a it's a long time coming. So it never it never really feels like an event like we graduated until yeah. you know of course the day we came to campus and you right. know we we worked here now it was much more like a long a series of many many conversations and stuff but ultimately of course you know incredibly satisfying um uh to to have that sort of acknowledgement that what we built was was valuable to a place like google so
1: yeah was it hard going from a really small culture to something that was as as big as google
0: um I, I would say, yeah, sure. You know, it's, I don't know if hard is the right. word. different. is certainly the word uh, that pops to mind. Cause you know, we were adaptive path was 25 people and the measurement team was seven of us. So to go from basically working every day with seven people to, you know, a company at the time that w- was about 5,000 was, uh, was a big change, <clears throat> but you know, I had done consulting in a lot of large organizations and was kind of knew what to expect, but at the same time coming to Google, um, it was so much different than every any large corporation I'd ever seen before. Um, so much more like a startup and so much more entrepreneurial that, frankly, it, it, the transition wasn't nearly as difficult as I would have guessed it would have been.
1: Hmm. Would have been. So then when you decided to – I guess I used the royal you – but when the decision was made to redesign Google Analytics, uh, what – what were the goals for your redesign
0: well so the, that that was interesting we um We came in um about six months or uh, maybe maybe four months after um Google Analytics had become a free product and so that product had had been at Google for about a year uh, uh It had been an acquisition of a company called urchin uh, which was a enterprise software uh enterprise software for um you know stats and and analytics and stuff like that. Um, and really what they found was that um, moving from enterprise software to essentially consumer software i mean it's so it's incredibly powerful enterprise software but the market by making it free you know suddenly spread them out um, to a much much wider audience right and and so basically they asked us to come in and help them understand you know what the implications for that were uh, in the past you know there was a there was always some corporate decision to buy a piece of uh, you know, to buy an analytics suite like like the urchin software and, and people would bring it in and they'd install it and people would train and become experts in it. And now they were offering that same software to anybody who had a website. Right. Like anybody could sign up for an account, <laughs> put the code on their on their website and start tracking. So that meant, right, that they wanted to hang on to all the power and all the functionality and all the features that they had of this this fantastic piece of software and make that accessible to a whole new audience. And that's what we came in and spent a year working on.
1: Hmm. So, do you have a, a favorite feature?
0: Oh, I, it's it's hard to say. I I love the fact that if you drill down to any single report, we've we've done so much work around bringing so many different data points in that you can sort the data, uh, apply different graphs to it, compare data to one another. That really each page of the report represents probably like sixty or seventy reports in the previous application, right? Wow. The earlier version of that application. Um, I love that. Um, I also love the, the geolocation features, like being able to plot all of the traffic on a map. I think that is just so fascinating. And then to, and, and then to see different behaviors from different countries or cities or things like that. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of is the, the way our team put the dashboard together so that when you log in, you can customize it and bring kind of anything you want up to the, up to the top. And, um, uh, and we, we heard from a lot of customers and a lot of the users out there that they wanted that level of, of personalization and customization. And I, and I'm really pleased with how that came out. So,
1: Can you point to anything that was particularly difficult to pull off, but in the end you, you, you like really hit it out of the ballpark?
0: Well, <laughs> um, I, uh, I tell you when we were doing, we did a lot of research, um, Uh, Because we frankly didn't know that much about the existing audience we Like I said we made measure map because those that enterprise analytics software um, was typically something we didn't quite understand right and so the irony of coming to Google and working on analytics meant we had to start to understand that audience. Right? <laughs> so, um, so we went out and we talked to all kinds of customers and we did interviews and, uh, and interviews and interviews with people to try to figure out what, what they were, you know, uh, what the important features were, what, what features they wanted from the application that it, that it currently wasn't doing and, and stuff like that. And I came to realize that there's a, there's a big population out there that uses tools like Google Analytics every day for their jobs and if we were going to basically change the way that they were going to have to work. Hmm. And that, you know, you, you could imagine, cause a little bit of anxiety among the teams, sure, right? yeah. wow, these people use this application all day to do their jobs. And, you know, it's a tremendous opportunity for us to be able to redesign that experience to make it better and make it more um, accessible and more powerful and more flexible. But at the same time, um, that's, you know, changing the way the experience so many people already have. So that was, you know, that was a, that was a pretty big deal for us. Um, and something that we totally kept in mind. And, um, and I'm so glad we had the opportunity to do all of that research, to really get to know that audience and to be able to sort of figure out what their needs were and their, and their goals were with the, with the application.
1: Yeah. Cause you know, that's one thing that people love is change.
0: <laughs> you know? yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, then that is just a, a classic sort of design, uh, conundrum, right? Yeah, with, exactly. With web apps where you know people grow really accustomed to how an application works, and you really you, you can't pull the rug out from under them. Right. I mean, we look at things like eBay, and and eBay is perplexing to me. You know, it's a it's a pretty confusing interface.
1: I um, still can't believe it hasn't changed yet. But
0: but that's because I, I I think their core audience, the people who you know the the most valuable sellers um, in that in that community um, have really adapted to that interface and frankly hmm. love that interface. And so how would you change that? Yeah, then, you know? no, that's and, a good point. And that is, that is something that frankly I don't have an answer to. Um, it is and it is something that you do very carefully and you do in a measured way over time. The eBay interface has evolved tremendously over the years but you never really see it evolve, right? It just yeah. happens very, very slowly and methodically and, and for always for the better. And when it's not for the better, they roll things back. And, You know, that's one approach to take and, um, but it's a, yeah, that's a tough challenge.
1: So is there any, any concepts on the web that you see becoming less important while others are becoming more important where, where user experience is involved?
0: Um, control is something that I've always, that I've seen over the last few years. And what what I mean by that is that, um, I think typically designers are, um, are used to having a lot of control over the work they do, right? The way their work is presented, um, the way their work is used. And I think that comes from a tradition of graphic design that goes back to things like print um, or, um, you know, the kind of motion graphics that we did on television and things like that, that that didn't necessarily have a large interactive component, right? Um, the designers that I work with that I learned from at Wired Magazine were phenomenal, designers that the attention to detail and the knowledge of the craft blew me away at, at the same time they were making an artifact right they were hmm. making uh, a thing out of atoms that that they would ship to people and people would hold in their hands and use and and look at and and it didn't change right the big difference when we move to the web is that we have very very little control i mean even from a basic graphic design point of view right like you have a choice of maybe five typefaces that you know you can right. use. Right. <laughs> uh, you have no idea how color it's going to reproduce. Exactly. On, on people, different monitors. You don't even know the size of the page. Yeah. Right? Like, how big is their browser? How wide is their browser? What resolution they have? We don't know any of them. You don't things.
1: even know what device they're going to use. No idea,
0: right? No idea whatsoever. So um, having that as, the, as not just a constraint, but the foundation for how we approach the craft now means that we have to be completely comfortable with the fact that we have no control. And that's, and that actually can be really sort of liberating when you think, instead of making a thing that I'm gonna to give to people, I'm going to basically design a bunch of tools that people can use to have their own experience. And that, I think, is the biggest change for the web, is that we, are, we merely make tools that allow people to do what they need to get done. Hmm. So um, so when you think about, think about that, that turns into, you know, dramatically changes the way you, you approach things, right? Like, right. Um, I, you know, I thought about some of the work we were doing with, with MeasureMap, and I, one of the things I kept coming back to is that we are going to attempt to make a visualization that we think is pretty good for this data that we're collecting from users. But the assumption the whole time was that we would also have an API that any user could get their data and they could do whatever visualization they would want to do, right? right? Our, uh, our duty was to collect that data for people make it accessible to them, and perhaps provide some context into a visualization into some you know to put it into use for them but ultimately the job was to collect the data and make it available hmm. and that you know and I see that in all of the successful uh, web apps right, if you look right. At flickr their their mission right is to is to store your photos we'll make a way and we'll make it as easy as possible for you to get your photos in to get them out however you want and their their API has just Created this immense ecosystem of little apps that can, you know, talk to Flickr and get that and do interesting stuff with people's photos, and they try to provide, you know, a, one possible experience with all of those photos, and they've done a very good job of of building sort of social application on top of a set of content. But there's there's this acknowledgement that they are not in control of right. the experience; they are just providing a set of tools to enable an experience.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that's something that's important, not only for the people who build the websites to get, but also the stakeholders. I've been in lots of meetings where, you know, you're talking about designing to pixel perfection and that CEO is like, I want it to look exactly the same on every people's, you know, screen. And, and I think that's a lesson that we can all learn from.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it is it is a notion of what brand means, right? And and one of the things we we talked about at Adaptive Path an awful lot that is that brand comes from experience, and that almost everybody who's making a product now is really actually making a service, right? And that the experience that people have with an organization has so much more to do with brand perception than pixels on a screen or pixels, hmm. you know, or logos and and things like that. It's much much different. Um, and we see that we see organizations. Uh, you know, Apple is a is a great example. Uh, the iPod is very much a um, an object that they've crafted, but ultimately they're providing a service for you to manage and and uh, um, and uh, collect music, right? So it right. connects to your. You know, you don't you don't enter metadata about your about your songs on the iPod. Right? right. That would have cluttered the interface. It would have made it you know a, a far less uh, compelling experience. So you, you hook it to your to your computer and you do that work there. But then you also can like drill through there into the store to buy more music or, or you know, and now movies and stuff like that. Right. So they clearly they've thought about this entire service that they want to provide uh, and embed, embedded that philosophy in a few products that do things very well. Huh.
1: So That's a good example. So if you could give advice to developers gearheads who sometimes are just asked to build a UI what what would you tell them
0: well I would go back to the empathy thing that's something that's really important right it uh, interfaces that make sense to you as a developer who's so close to the code and so close to the data that the code is manipulating and um, uh, it's hard to keep in mind the fact that you are even though you you may want to be using this product you probably aren't representative of the users who are, right? And I think about that all the time. Like I said, Google has this tremendous wealth of talent here, right? Just amazing. But it's it's hard to get a job at Google, and you know you 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 were at the head of your class, and you you know you went to a great <laughs> school, and all of those kinds of things, right? It it's important to remember that. Um, Most people at Google aren't like most of the audience, (laughs) right? Right, And that's across the board at at almost every tech company that I've ever been to. The people who work there are not like their audience. Even though they may share the desire to use the product in the same way and everything, uh, there's probably – it's important to have that sort of empathy to to try to remember that I'm not making this just for myself, right? But that other people are going to have to decipher this thing that I'm that I'm building. I,
1: I wish I could remember who wrote the blog post, but I w- I saw somebody's uh, entry that said, you know, they were talking about user experience and and they cited their universal remote control, and they're just like some engineer somewhere decided <laughs> they needed that button, but it didn't help me any
0: yeah and and it's and uh, another thing that i try to remind people is not only are people different from you but you are different at different times Mm. right so for example uh i make the stupidest mistakes when i've been working for you know 14 hour day and i have a few of those days in a row and i haven't slept very well and i am extremely (laughs) tired i make dumb mistakes i am that stupid user that frustrates me right right? you know we Usability is, uh, has a lot more to do with just like dumbing down something for a mass audience. Right. It has to do with making things as intuitive as possible so that they clearly communicate their use and their functionality, that they um, help people not just recover from errors, but avoid making them in the first place. I mean, it's really, it's really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mean, it's, um, it's something that, you know, frankly, we spent um, a lot of time on the web trying to sort this out, and I think we're only now just kind of scratching the surface.
1: Yeah. it's. I, I always wonder what my kids' kids are going to be able to see and do and use on the web and everywhere else, the way technology progresses.
0: Yeah, well, there's, a, there's certainly a generational aspect to it, right? Um, I think the rise of things like MySpace and Facebook are uh, an acknowledgment that the audience for those applications are... Um, people who have never used a computer that's not connected to all the other computers. Right. Right. So if you look at things like uh, 15 years ago, the dominant sort of software was Microsoft Office. Right. Yeah. And that was people who used computers to um, to create documents. Right. Like they used it to to, to do work. Whereas today, most people. Um, and especially younger generations use computers to communicate with each other. It's, it's it's incredible. It's what they use. In fact, they use more than the phone. They (laughs) they use it more than almost any other mechanism to communicate with one another. They use these technologies to do it. And there's an acknowledgement of that. And I think these generational shifts um, are, are really interesting indicators for how the kind of design work and and web apps that'll be popular are going to be right. I think another way to think about that is that, um, uh, a younger generation now thinks of everything that they put on the web as being public by default, unless they make it private, right. which is very different from that generation that grew up with Microsoft Office, yes. where everything was mine unless I shared it with someone. Right. And that's a huge shift. Huge shift. Yeah. But we see that in um, in the way in which the you know Facebook applications are designed, acknowledging the fact that everything is public unless you make it private. Right. So I mean, big big shifts.
1: Well, sir, it's, it's been an honor.
0: No, oh, it's been a pleasure having this chat.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope uh, we can do this again sometime.
0: Yeah, I certainly hope so. Thanks so much for having me.
1: You know, there's nothing like getting it from the people who know. Thanks again to Jeff Fien for coming on the show and hanging out with us. It certainly was a lot of fun. Show notes are over at getpixelated.com slash shows slash veen. That's V-E-E-N. Until next time, this is Craig Shoemaker. I'll see you.
0: Pixelate Radio. On the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixelated.com.
1: All rights reserved. Copyright 2008.
0: Infragistics. Powering the presentation layer. Infragistics.com.